Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. You may withdraw yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Please note, this call may be recorded. I will be standing by if you should need any assistance. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Tom Wallen. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, uh, and welcome, everyone. Uh, uh, our, the title of our uh, virtual roundtable here in December is um, uh, basically a question. Uh, is a debt bomb about to blow up U.S. shale? And that was a headline in a story that we ran a few weeks ago that attracted a lot of interest. Uh, it's a topic that we've been delving into and looking at from a number of facets. And uh, I thought that uh, this would be a good subject for us to discuss and explore today. Um, before we get started, I, I need to read a, a, a brief legal statement. We're journalists here. We're not investment advisors. So uh, if you just bear with me. Um, the information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization that such persons or organizations sole risk. Okay, with that out of the way, um, so the, back, back, back to our topic here. Um, I think uh, it's generally recognized that the U.S. shale sector has shown surprising resilience so far this year, but uh, the critical, one of the critical questions uh, we're now facing is how is it going to manage in the coming year um, with the, this mounting financial pressure? And that's really the topic that we're going to try to explore today. We have with us uh, Casey Sattler, who's the Western Hemisphere News Editor at Energy Intelligence and also the editor of uh, EI Finance. Uh, and we also have David Knapp, who's our Chief uh, Energy Economist and the Editor of Oil Market Intelligence. Good morning. Um, good morning. Good morning. Okay, well, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to start out with a question uh, to Casey. Um, and essentially, uh, uh, it goes to the sort of heart of this, this uh, topic today. Um, how big is this debt bomb facing U.S. shale? How did it come about, and how are the risks spread out over time? Could you sure. comment on that for us, Casey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, I think to, to start, you have to go back to 2008 and 2009, and what you had was, you know, the United States and the world at large was trying to deal with the recession, and so uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve basically cut interest rates to zero, and what that did was it compelled investors to – kind of actively and aggressively look for investments that would give them yield. And at the same time, we had the U.S. tidal oil boom really kind of coming into its own. And the, this helps the oil and gas sector be one of the strongest corners of the U.S. economy. And so when you had all these kind of elements combined, it was kind of the perfect storm of an incredible amount of money just being poured into the U.S. oil and gas space almost with a frenzied pace. And when you kind of put that against a broader expectation that we were moving to some kind of commodity super cycle where oil prices would be, you know, high and stable for a long period of time, there was kind of a 
ignorance to the fact that this is ultimately a cyclical business, and so the risks were not necessarily kind of properly weighted. And what we've ended up with is over $200 billion in high-yield debt being held by the U.S. oil and gas sector. And to kind of maybe put that in perspective in terms of the number of companies, out of the roughly 100 EMPs that Standard & Poor's rates 77% of those companies would qualify as, you know, a speculative grade or high-yield company. So it's, it's an enormous, enormous amount of, of debt out there. Okay, thanks. Um, so, you know, in this environment, what types of companies are most vulnerable? And, um, you know, which ones are most likely to go under uh, in the near term? And which ones have the best chances of survival? Yeah, what we're really seeing become incredibly clear the last couple months in particular is this dichotomy is being created where you have the ha almost the haves and the have-nots. Uh, for example, Pioneer Natural Resources, one of the largest producers in the Permian Basin, an investment-grade company, was able to rather easily go out into the debt markets refinance about a billion dollars worth of debt, was able to do it actually cheaper than what their debt they were retiring uh, carried in terms of interest rates. Um, what, we've at, what we've seen to kind of further that point is that investment-grade oil and gas companies have issued more debt this year than they have since at least 2000, which is as far back as geologics data goes. And at the same time, if you switch over to the high-yield side, issuances have just completely fallen off a cliff. Uh, you had about $23.5 billion issued in the first half of the year and about $4 billion in the second half, and it's been shrinking in subsequent months. So the market isn't completely closed, but what, what you're seeing is that the rates that companies would have to pay to get that debt, it's just completely onerous. And given that these companies are already paying an enormous amount of their cash to service their existing debt, there's just no way that they could handle it. And so, you're, you know, the companies that need the capital the most are, gonna, are having the hardest time accessing it. So, Casey, looking at, you know, all the different forms of financing, not only the bond market but other – uh, other things that uh, these companies have available to them. Um, you know, what has been lost and what remains available? Um, you know, how, how much uh, kind of string do they have left? Yeah, well, you, you know, you certainly saw a rather robust toolkit for these companies this year, and they smartly used those tools. We saw tremendous amount of equity issued at the start of the year, um, you know, and like I mentioned earlier, in, in the first half when bond markets were still open, uh, these kind of more troubled companies went out and got more debt. They were able to successfully raise a significant amount of second lien debt. So this is uh, secured loans that they are, you know, are backed by at least some collateral, which would be their reserves. And then they also have reserve-backed loans, which are their borrowing bases, and we saw those really not take too much of a haircut um, in the fall like expected. But the issue moving forward is that one by one, each of these tools is being pulled. On the equity side, the only instances where we've seen companies still issue is a very specific subgroup, Permian Producers issuing equity to fund acquisitions. 
Um, the Permian, that's still something that investors are willing to put some money in, but unless you kind of fit that very specific set of qualifications, equity is just too expensive. We've already discussed how bonds have, have shrunk. Um, in terms of second lien, uh, that money got burned almost immediately, and it is completely sitting on the sidelines. Um, Reserve-backed loans, uh, they have held up. Like I said, uh, banks really didn't kind of haircut companies too much. The issue is that um, going into the spring, which is the next time banks will take a look at these loans, the expectation is that companies will have had significant percentages of their reserves written off because of the way that SEC rules work and the prices that they'll have to benchmark their reserves on, as well as there are limitations on how long you can keep uh, certain reserves on your books if you're not planning on developing them in the next five years. And so where we really fit is we're in a place where there really aren't a whole lot of tools left. Um, and so uh, speaking with uh, several experts recently, the takeaway was unless something like, say, private equity um, or significant asset sales, unless there's some new form of money comes into the market, you know, this morning, that these companies could really be in significant trouble, that the, the, the disappearance of second lien debt could really be the big shoe to drop. And um, the head of U.S. restructuring at Deloitte, you know, was saying that from his view that he thinks that if, if nothing else appears, that companies we're talking about mid-tier companies here, uh, will probably either have to stop drilling or could very well run out of money next year. There's one form, a very traditional in the patch, uh, which is a form of partnering where you, uh, you do farming. So that one way to get money and to get uh, drilling continue, and if you're in trouble, is that you, you find a partner, uh, but the, the cost of enticing them in is becoming uh, more and more prohibitive. Uh, some of them are just going to wait until they see the, abs the actual collapse, and then they eat the whole thing. Yeah, that's a very good point. We've seen in a couple cases where that's how private equity has been involved uh, in these kind of structured partnerships, and they have very defined returns, and they've done that with some of the more distressed players. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good point, David. Okay, well, so shifting over to the kind of implications of all, all of this, I mean, what, Casey, can you sort of describe, you know, what the timeline is for companies going under? Um, and is there any way to estimate how many companies may fail over the next, say, 6 to 12, 18 months? Um, yeah. If prices so, stay, just, stay low, as everybody expects? Right. Yeah, well, so kind of, you know, where we are today, um, we've had at least 21 defaults so far in U.S. oil and gas, and we had uh, Magnum Hunter was the latest yesterday uh, who filed for Chapter 11. Um, you know, just to kind of put it in perspective, um, about 9% of high-yield ENP uh, debt has defaulted so far. This is the highest rate since 1999. So, you know, even though a lot of maybe the companies involved you haven't heard of until you saw the press release, uh, it's it certainly there has been an impact to date. Um, I think the key thing to, to think of is a couple things. Um, if you look at the oil and gas sector, uh, 37% Oh, sorry, the oil and gas sector comprises 37% of all the distressed debt now in the U.S. It's by far the largest sector. And by distressed, that, that 
uh, technically means that it's at some risk of default. And um, about 50% of oil and gas debt is qualified as distressed. And it's not just super small companies. I mean, for example, Chesapeake Energy technically qualifies as a distressed, distressed firm at this point. And um, if you look at the ratings agencies, usually when they kind of put a company in distress, they're looking at like an eight to nine month window. Now that said, they're not suggesting that all of these companies are going to default. Um, if you look over the last five years, about a fifth to a quarter of, of debt that became distressed actually went under. But, um, you know, it's, it's a really, really bleak landscape out there. I mean, the way that uh, S&P put it recently is about 51 companies that, that they rate that are you know, a B minus or lower rating are quote on life support and that the companies that are already at a C plus or lower rating are effectively within 12 to 18 months of going under. So, um, you know, this is kind of really only, only beginning to unfold. Oh, that's, a, that's a, sounds really serious. Um, it's a for sale sign being hung on a lot of them. It, it, but, but David, over to you, I mean, you know, uh, you know, is this kind of scale of a problem uh, for the energy sector uh, a threat to the U.S. banking system or the U.S. economy? Is there a systemic threat here? Well, um, those of you that were on our first virtual roundtable back in, I think, was April, that we used the term economic Darwinism about the companies. Um, and in my mind, that's a Darwinism that would be usefully applied to uh, uh, banks that have uh, uh, done not very well in picking who they lend to, and in fact, are, uh, in many cases, have been throwing good money after bad. So some sorting out among the membership of this banking community, I think, is highly likely and probably a, a, a positive for the longer term. Um, I don't think it's the kind of collapse that we saw back in, uh, in 2008 with the subprime uh, situation, uh, and that's been a lesson as well. There are checks and balances that have been put into the banking system. There is a level of attention uh, to the individual exposures, which is much higher than it used to be. Uh, so the the authorities are on notice. And again, like with the uh, the companies, that uh, there are other banks out there that are in better position that may find a way to pick up this portfolio at a discount, obviously, uh, and be able to manage it in a better way than the other companies. Um, I don't think it's going to be uh, cause a recession. We're still a net energy consuming country, so I think it's good for more than it's bad for. Yeah, I mean, just to add one point to that, because I definitely agree uh, with David's point that on the on the banking system side, and, we, and we've flat out seen it, we know that regulators are going to banks and specifically asking about their exposure to oil and gas debt. You know, they're trying to avoid some of the issues that you've had before. <clears throat> what has come up in the last, you know, kind of really week or so very hard, and what we have to see is this concern of while oil and gas really led the, the junk bond you know, issuance over the last several years. It wasn't the only place that companies were looking for yield and maybe kind of dis discounting risks. And so, say, junk bonds as a whole are really starting to take a hit, and a lot of financial experts are trying to figure out what does that mean. And there are people on both sides of, oh, gosh, could we get some systemic risk? And Or, no, we, we think that this will be kind of more limited. So uh, on, on that front, there there seems to be kind of the verdict is still out. 
And as Casey was pointing out before, that there are a number of sources of cash flow that are a number of sources of, of funds for the uh, for the E&P sector, and the uh, the equity side of it is already getting punished in in much lower stock prices. And some of those companies, if they go out of business, there may be very little left for the person that uh, that overinvested. And and certainly there there's very limited protection in, on some of the bonds as well, unless they're they're secured by loans. Um, and if they're secured by reserves, uh, that's another problem which we haven't really mentioned. Uh, but the reserve revaluation is having a major impact, and that is is in the near term. Uh, that at the end of the year, the 12-month moving average for the SEP and the kind of mark-to-market that some companies are trying to do uh, is really going to take a bunch out of the asset base of these companies. Okay. Well, let's look at some of the, the you know, the well, the position of a, of, of a particular company. Uh, you know, not sort of a generic company, but how how, how does for for a com- at the company level, how does this process uh, of going under play out, and what are the outcomes and implications for the operations of the company? If you could speak to that, Casey, and then David, if you could also maybe comment on whether or not we have examples from the past that are that, that show kind of a a pointer to to, to what we're expecting. So uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, what we're seeing is, is, is typically it's kind of going in two ways. So um, if a company is not necessarily on the brink of quite going under, what you are seeing are distressed exchanges where they're selectively defaulting on a certain amount of their debt. And we've seen a number of, of ENPs go this route where, they, you know, they have bondholders that are basically willing to take a haircut and they either get equity in the company or they get some other form of debt that's secured but is generally worth less. So we've seen some selected defaults. And then for the companies, they're actually just at a point where where they cannot, something like that can't give them enough of a leg to stand on. Chapter 11, bankruptcy, is what we're seeing. Uh, just as a pointer, Chapter 7, bankruptcy is when a you know, company actually just kind of halts operations and goes into liquidation. In Chapter 11, you have your day-to-day operations continue in some fashion, and then you work with courts to reorganize the company with the with the goal of be, becoming profitable once again. Now, that process can take months. In some cases, it can take a couple years, and whether it actually is sufficient to get the company back prof, you know, back and profitable is very much an open question, but this is what we're typically seeing. And so one pointer to that is these companies are not just being wiped off the, you know, the face of the earth, we're talking about, if we're talking about implications of production later on, these companies are still operating in some fashion. They're still production because they're trying to restructure, not fold. Okay. And David, in terms of are there historical examples we can look to, do you think? Well, if we look back at the uh, 98-99 situation, and uh, that hit in particular in some of the marginal production in the U.S., stripper wells, and uh, and also the Central California Huff and Puff, these uh, enhanced recovery process, uh, where production went down. But in that case, uh, there was a little bit of redistribution of assets. A couple new people came in, but it was really pretty much the same landscape when it got done. But in that situation, uh, the prices came back fairly quickly and fairly sharply. Um, conventional production there and in Western Canada were also the other part of the margin. You can see that recovering quickly. 
we're thinking in the lower for longer uh, situation here that maybe the time horizon and certainly the expectations are different uh, than they were. But also we're dealing with a brand new um, uh, thing here with uh, the shale has only been around in people's minds for five or ten years. And so we're still learning the parameters of it. So I'd be a little bit on the optimistic side about the continuation of shale use and production. The other thing that goes on, of course, is that uh, chief executives uh, end up um, being gotten rid of um, with Roman candles rather than golden parachutes. Um, a lot of things go on within the company, and uh, one of the telling signs is if the accountants are running the company, uh, even if they're in Chapter 11, they're headed for Chapter 7 usually. So that's another thing to watch is who, who's in charge and where are they going. Uh, private equity, uh, one way to look at that is that uh, the same equipment, and in many cases, like in the Eagleford, the same workers are going to be out there working the same shales. It's just the name on the door has changed. That's the Darwinism we were talking about. Okay, David. Well, actually, both of you, this is really to both of you. Um, you know, looking at uh, what what we can expect in terms of the impact on U.S. production next year. Um, you know, if companies are running out of financing. Uh, and, and failing and being restructured, you know, what, what's the what's the likely impact on U.S. production? How much how much is at risk? How much could be taken out? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll let Casey um, uh, pop in here in just a minute because I think she's got the numbers in front of her. But uh, one of the interesting features of this is that a bulk of the production in the shale, in the good shale areas, is being uh, handled by relatively healthy company and companies. And the ones that are in the bottom and that are at risk are not responsible for a very big amount. Um, I think you were sort of saying a 10% number before, but I'm not sure that was about this in terms of the production exposure, Casey. No, you're exactly right. Uh, Canaccord was was estimating that about 70% of U.S. oil production comes from the majors and the top 25 independents. Less than 10% is from these small and mid-tier public E&Ps, and so the balance 20% private companies. And within that, they also figured that about 60% of production is from investment-grade companies. So that, that what, that's how they kind of figured the breakdown. Yeah. yeah, that's for the aggregate industry. So obviously shale is a portion of a little bit different, and it might even be even more skewed that uh, the reason why these guys are in terrible trouble is they've been taking all this money and not finding very much stuff. And right now, any cash flow that they may be getting from anywhere uh, is is being milked out of the last of their wells in order to service their debt and is not available to be uh, drilling holes, whereas the big guys are drilling holes, finding more stuff, and I think ultimately they'll be drilling on the weaker guy's land, um, or there'll be private equity people that are in there that are doing it. So I think the impact will be somewhat limited but because of this skewed distribution of ownership within these places. The, the one sort of complicating factor in all this is the way that we count shale, uh, the EIA anyway, is that they, they have shale counties, which include a lot of conventional production, which is particularly important in the, in the Permian. Um, and in the Permian, they even are coming out of same wells, same as in Oklahoma, where there are these stacked deposits where you have some shale zones, some conventional zones, and the, the economics all get mixed together. And then on top of that, um, natural gas is a co-product of this, and it certainly hasn't been much of a help on the cash flow side as the, uh, uh, the prices of gas have, have actually uh, made oil prices look not so bad. 
but David, can you put some kind of a number on it? You you, you want to try to you know? Are we talking, you know, tens of well, thousands of barrels a day, hundred thousands of barrels a day? Yeah, the, barrels a day. What's the? We just uh, we issued OMI last night, and uh, hopefully all of you are reading it diligently of our subscribers, um, we still see continued growth in U.S. production in 2016, but the Gulf of Mexico is a big help for that, sort of a rebound from the Macondo dip, so it's not really related to, to shale. And some of the shale areas, which are real shale, we think are, are being uh, continuing to be somewhat resilient. So we see a, a very sharp decline in the growth rate from about 1.5 million barrels a day to more like 500,000. Um, but there's certainly a health warning on the downside of that uh, with the debt bomb. Uh, that's what's going to determine it. If the companies are taken out, that's never done in a frictionless way. So uh, I don't want to be too cavalier about saying we're changing the names on the door. That takes a while. Uh, wells don't get drilled for a while. Production goes down. And ultimately, uh, these sweet spots only have so much to give. And once you get out of the sweet spots, you know, the kind of uh, productivity is going gonna, is gonna to decline as well. And then we might be seeing declines in 2017 or late in 2016. Casey, can you comment on the sort of longer-term impacts of this um, on, the, on the, not only the, these, you know, uh, highly uh, at-risk uh, producers, but the, the industry as a whole, this whole financial Process. Yeah, I think a way to maybe think about it is to go back to the kind of the initial question of of this this whole conversation. You know, is a debt bomb about to blow up U.S. shale? And on that, to David's point, no, because of this skewed distribution. But is a debt bomb about to blow up in U.S. shale? I think the answer is yes, and and that has you know shrapnel that hits companies large or small. You know, the fact of the matter is that you know. Um, companies of all shapes and sizes are losing money in the U.S. right now and U.S. upstream, and that what you're seeing is they are having to prioritize their own balance sheets, their own ratings, their their own internal structures to ensure that they remain strong. And uh, you know, I mean, it's just to give an example, a company like Devon, you know, very well healed. They're nowhere near the distressed companies we're talking about, and they made an acquisition. And, you know, initially investors were like, yeah, we think this is good long-term, but, oh, gosh, you used some cash for this deal, you know. I mean, that's kind of the sentiment, is that a dollar is precious to everyone. And that's a really big change in the mindset of, of the U.S. E&P space that I think has to be understood, that, you know, the whole reason why tidal oil has boomed the way that it has been is because if people could find pocket change in the sofa, they went out and drilled another well. And now they're taking that change and they're hoarding it and, and using it to pay off debt. And what that means long term is you know, there's a lot of questions about is the U.S. the next swing supplier and can it act as a, a global swing supplier of oil because of the short cycle that you know, shale takes to develop. And the longer this kind of downturn goes on and the longer there's this financial pressure, then you it doesn't really kind of quite matter, so to speak, how quickly shale production can be turned on because financially the cycle will be extended. And there will be a longer and longer period of time where companies have to take higher cash flows if oil prices do recover and, and just fix their balance sheets make sure that they are financially sound companies. And only then could they think about really turning on 
growth. And I, so that's, I think, really kind of the broader implications of this financial, you know, kind of crisis that the U.S. EMP industry is really going under right now. It's not the topic of this talk, but uh, some of that shrapnel that Casey is talking about is very, very relevant to uh, the midstream and to the oil service sector, uh, both of which have seen pretty much bloodbaths in terms of their valuations as well. So there's spillover, and that will, in fact, uh, have an impact on uh, shale when it gets back to the point where it's filled up the available pipe. The people that are going to make new pipe are going to have trouble, and it's maybe going to be tough to get crews if this thing goes on long enough that you've let people go, moved them out of the area. Eagleford will be fine, but Bakken won't. Uh, to get people back in is going to take time and, and money. Absolutely. Great okay, well, I think we should wrap this up and move on to some of the questions. We had a, before, we, you know, uh, uh, before the call, we had some email questions come in. And um, uh, interestingly, we had basically the same question coming in from uh, a subscriber in, in, in Baku, Azerbaijan, and also in California. And um, basically, it's the question of, you know, what is the break-even price for shale in the U.S.? And um, uh, our current price is below that. Our company is profitable. You know, what, 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 is that, what does that picture look like for break-even prices? Um, David, do you want to comment on that? or? Uh, yes, it's above and below. <laughs> Explain. Uh, uh, break-even is a, a very um, – well, dumb would be a word. It, it's not a useful content, uh, concept for some of us. Um, you know, first of all, somebody asked me when I was over in Japan about, well, what's the break-even cost for this company? And I said, that's the wrong question. What's the debt equity ratio? What are the loan covenants? It's the financial side, which is why we've had this meeting. But if you do try to put it on the right turf in terms of separating operating costs from all-in finding and development costs, which are very different numbers, um, and you look at a spread for break-even prices. It's commonly this, this kind of bar, uh, up-and-down bar thing. Uh, but then everybody uses the middle, which is the one place where almost nobody is going to be. They're all at the top and the bottom, which is why I said it's both above and below. What's the price? Um, there are companies that can operate at, at $40, and they are operating and, and not losing money. Um, Operating. Full finding and development costs, is the next well in those areas going to be profitable at these prices? Probably not. Um, and then the global thing, is the Arctic or is the deep water offshore going to be profitable at these prices? No. And that's where the OPEC strategy has had its biggest wins. It's with cutting into the 2019-2020, post-2020 type production uh, capacities. Casey, do you want to add anything on that? Just one point. I think it, I, I definitely agree with what what David is laying out. I think you have to think of it this way. You know, there's there's liquidation and there's slow motion liquidation, and that's when you can cover your cash costs but not your full replacement costs. And so I think when we have a discussion around break evens, that you have to understand that there's the the, the price that is needed for say some some development in the Bakken or some development in the Permian to work, and then there's the 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 price that a company needs to actually just exist and function, and that price is higher. And the issue is not that there isn't anything out there that doesn't work at $35, $36 WTI, but it's that companies don't work at $35, $36 WTI. And, and that's really kind of what David's point is about 
the pieces that you really need to look at when you ask that question. So. Yeah, I mean, aren't we talking about sort of full cycle costs for shale of fifty to sixty dollars a barrel, and therefore companies yeah. can't support this as a as a long term business model? And um, that's that's kind of what they're what we're wrestling with here. So. It, yeah. It's similar to when people do OPEC. Um, it's sort of break-even price, but you know when they say they're they're uh, the necessary price, they include uh, their social spending, which is required to keep the people in charge in charge. Uh, in some cases, uh, we were talking before the call, and I was I didn't know the answer to it, but I said, is debt service included as part of break-even cost? And it isn't, and it should be. Okay, one more quick question from uh, the emails, and it's actually very topical given. The fact that we have this budget bill now moving through Congress, it looks like it's going to lift the ban on U.S. exports. Um, you know, if the you know if this goes through and the ban is lifted, what's the impact of that? Um, are, are we going to see a big increase in U.S. exports, David? No. There will it, it makes for a more efficient market. So we'll see some quality trading going on, similar to the swap that we're already doing with Mexico, uh, where they don't have very good refineries, so they need the light, sweet crude, so they don't have to worry about the sulfur and, the, and breaking up the molecules, uh, whereas we have all these cokers that are going sort of underutilized that are, were built for Mexican Mayan. Um, that's at 100,000 barrels a day. Maybe it goes to 300,000 barrels a day, um, but maybe there's some swap uh, um, appearances to that as well. But I don't think it's going to change it because the Atlantic Basin doesn't need more U.S. oil. Okay, well, let's move on to questions from the audience then. Um, I think we've taken probably too much time, and we're not leaving enough time for them. But, um, Operator, could you see if there are any questions from the, from, from the listeners? Certainly. We have no questions now, but I will remind participants that is star and one on your touchtone phone to ask a question today. Again, that's star and one on your touchtone phone. If you find that your question has already been answered, you may remove yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. And we'll go ahead and take our first question from Colin Smith. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yeah, hi, guys. Um, just hi, one thing that wasn't touched Hi there. One thing that wasn't touched on that may be germane to this is just where things sit with hedging uh, going forward, because obviously a lot of production was hedged through the course of this year at much higher prices, and those hedges are presumably in the process of rolling off now and in the next few months. And I just wondered if there was a view about uh, what companies were doing and whether that's going to make much difference or is making much difference to the thinking uh, that you've had in coming to the conclusions that you have. Thank you. Yeah, Casey? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Thank you. I, I it was meant to be discussed because you're right. It's actually it's a very important element of how we're thinking about it. I mean, it's absolutely true. One of the reasons there, I mean, there are several, but one of the reasons why shale was able to be as resilient as it was this year is because companies, yes, they were less protected than they were last year, but they still had meaningful hedges that allowed them to have better cash flows coming in than they would have had otherwise. Going into next year, they are almost. I mean, you know, there's there's certain uh, requirements on, on hedging, uh, so it's not that they're not hedged at all, but they're effectively kind of as naked as they can be. And um, one of the big things that I, I don't have an answer for you today, but we're trying to really get an understanding of is will there be pressure on companies 
if the forward curve, you know, kind of goes back to 50 to just kind of go all in and just accept, say, a $50 oil price, you know, uh, and lock that in, even though they may ultimately be kind of getting a lower price than, than they would otherwise, only because, you know, the difference between 50 and 35 is tremendous in terms of these companies being able to function. So um, it, it absolutely plays uh, a role into this notion that the industry not only has had to deal with well over a year of very poor prices, and so they're in a weakened state, but going into next year, um, even if we were to see an exact replica of prices that we saw this year, they would be worse off because they are much more exposed to those prices. And the prices they can hedge at are going to be lower. We're actually looking for, uh, um, you can think of a, a fish going through the water where uh, the middle of the curve may be bid down some to the point where the incentives to store go away and then you get a bunch of barrels flooding out of, of some of the, especially the floating storage and then some of the on-land storage, which then brings down the front end of the curve, that might look like a hedging opportunity, uh, but it's going to happen again and again and again uh, throughout 2016. Um, so it's shorter term uh, hedges rather than trying to fund a whole half-year drilling program the way they were able to do after the, the April bump up that we saw. And then some people came in even in the September, but it was much smaller again because it was at lower prices. So I think that's what we're going to see next year, very limited use of hedging. Any other, uh, other questions from uh, Thank you, Colin. Listeners? Thank you. And just a reminder to participants, that is star and one on your touchtone phone to ask a question today. We'll go ahead and take our next question from Jan Prince. Please, please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, hello, uh, Tom and uh, Casey and David. Thanks for your uh, comments. Um, Casey, you already mentioned that, of course, the cost of debt for a number of uh, distressed uh, companies have gone up, especially if they are borrowers in the uh, high-yield bond markets, uh, but also more in general. Now, when it comes to the valuation of reserves, of course, the oil price, either when it, you talk to banks, the future uh, oil price will be very... Uh, important an uh, important determinant and when it comes to the sac rules it will be the the, the past or the oil prices during uh, uh, in the, the past year uh, but apart from the oil price being a key determinant of the asset valuations and the borrowing basis of course also the discount factor with which you uh, discount future cash flow or in other words the the prevailing generally uh, interest environment and in particular more uh, the uh, uh, the cost of debt in general will also, the higher it is, the lower your valuations will be, the lower your borrowing basis will be. Um, has there been ever have been any analysis of what the impact could be of a higher uh, interest rate environment on, uh, on this? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I mean, we've seen um, in a couple instances the um, almost – you know, kind of one-off tidbits. Uh, and I think in some cases, I, Chesapeake Energy in particular has, has just trying to get out ahead because it's so material and, and, and indicate to their investors, you know, how much their PV10 of their reserves would fall if certain things happened. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning how, it, how uh, much they could fall. But 
no, I have not seen um, anyone really try to capture how those different pieces would work together to, you know, enhance um, enhance falls in valuations simply because of the reserve side. David, have you seen anything along those lines? That's an excellent question, but no, I have not seen anything. No, Jan, um, you know, obviously we're mostly think we're going to get a rate increase at 2 o'clock this afternoon, so yeah. it's, it's obviously a very relevant question. Um, and I expect that we'll start to see some analysis, but people will need to evaluate. First, they want to see it happen, um, and then they're going to maybe uh, pull up pencil and paper and start uh, start doing exactly that kind of analysis. There's one other moving part that needs to be added to this is that volumes matter as well. Uh, and remember, as I said earlier, that there this is a fairly new industry uh, with very limited experience in uh, what kind of, um, of uh, additional reserves, you know, the reserve ads that we see uh, that were now a big part of some of the uh, the aggregate estimates of, uh, of global oil reserves and of U.S. oil reserves. And the shale reserves do have some upside to them. Um, obviously, the price is going to work them down, but maybe they're, they're able to, uh, to book uh, on their probability models or the various parameters of it and the technologies that are being used to recover the oil uh, to actually add some barrels. Uh, less, you know, they're not as highly valued, but that will also uh, tend to be a, a small offset. Obviously, not as much of a impact as the uh, the overall interest rate. So, uh, yes, we're looking at it. I haven't seen anything, Casey, but I'm I'm sure that we'll see something in the next month from somebody. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Uh, other questions here? I think we have time for one more, probably. Okay, we do have one more question. We'll go ahead and take our last question from Mpio Ray. Please go ahead, your line is open. Okay, hi. Uh, thank you for all the comments today. I actually have one very high-level question, because I'm, I'm actually from South Korea, and I know that some companies are interested in acquiring assets in the U.S. Do you think it's the right time to acquire assets, or should we wait more uh, so that the debts can throw off some companies to the weight, or is a, do you think it's the right time to acquire assets? We are not investment advisors, <laughs> so <laughs> that's one that we, sh we shouldn't answer. But if, in case you could comment on the general M&A. General M&A, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I was going to say, what I, can de what I can certainly speak to is that uh, the debt loads of these companies have absolutely been one of the key deterrents for why we have not seen consolidation happen to maybe the extent that you would expect. And um, another consideration going into 2016 is that, you know, if you have a company that is trying, is basically having to spend within cash flows and uh, therefore its production is going into, you know, into decline, and that means they have fewer cash flows coming in, and that means they have less money to invest, you get this kind of death spiral of sorts. Um, and it, in that sense, perhaps that's where we would see more of like a private equity type company step in because they can offer financing and, and, and such. Um, what you are seeing is that uh, when we have had deals is that the buyers have tended to go for private ENPs because they are far more insulated from the, this uh, kind of debt albatross. Uh, they just are not as exposed, and also they um, can be 
they can move more quickly to just really like ramp down or even halt drilling altogether and really preserve their profile. So uh, when we've seen larger public ENPs buy someone, th those are our targets. Um, but I mean, broadly speaking, um, you know, you can get deals in a high oil price environment and in a low oil price environment, but a volatile oil price environment is very, is very, very tricky to to try and get some kind of consensus around, you know, what a proper valuation is. I mean, you still see analysts comment on the fact that a number of public E&Ps are still assuming that oil prices are going to recover, say, to $60, $70 soon. So if that's not what you're your outlook is, and you know that you have to pay a premium for a company, you know, you would maybe, you would probably not buy. Maybe you would just look at individual assets. I mean, there's lots of things on the market, but a lot of that stuff that's not economic right now, so it also depends on your investment horizon. So those are just some of the pieces. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think we, 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 our sort of view is that all, that all of this has got to keep playing out, uh, you know, before we see the, the kind of major consolidation start to take place, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and in fact, if you were inquiring sort of the uh, the juxtaposition of the removal of the export ban um, and foreign assets um, available for sale for someone that's a net importer of oil, uh, that that gets even more complicated in terms of the geography of it. Okay. Well, I think that's okay, all the time we have today, uh, and um, we're going to have to wrap it up. I uh, thank you, Casey. And David, and thank you for everyone who um, who listened in. I hope you found it helpful. Thank you. And we'll be everyone, we'll everyone. be kicking this off in January. Similar sort of thing. Uh, in the middle of January, we'll we'll reconvene. Thank you very much.